Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. Lawyers are leaders inside and outside of the courtroom. As a recent newsletter from the ABA Standing Committee on Professionalism points out, the legal profession has supplied a majority of American presidents, and in recent decades, almost half of Congress and 10% of S&P 500 companies' CEOs. Lawyers occupy leadership roles as governors, state legislators, judges, prosecutors, general counsel, law firm managing partners, and heads of government and nonprofit organizations. Yet, most law schools don't generally teach a formal leadership curriculum. Is there a better way for lawyers to learn how to be leaders? I'll be asking this question, among others, to the guest on today's show, who has been a leader in corporations, government entities, and law firms. And of course, my guest today is Tony West, who is the Senior Vice President, Chief Legal Officer, and Corporate Secretary at Uber, where he leads a global team of more than 600 in the company's legal, compliance and ethics, and security functions. Previously, Mr. West was Executive Vice President of Public Policy and Government Affairs, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at PepsiCo. And prior to joining PepsiCo, he served as the Associate Attorney General of the United States, which is the U.S. Department of Justice's third-ranking official, where he supervised many of the department's divisions. Prior to that, he served as the Assistant Attorney General of the Civil Division, which is the largest litigating division of the Justice Department. Earlier in his career, Mr. West served as Special Assistant Attorney General at the California Department of Justice and was a litigation partner at Morrison and Forrester in San Francisco. He graduated with honors from Harvard College, where he served as publisher of the Harvard Political Review and received his law degree from Stanford Law School, where he was president of the Stanford Law Review. Welcome to the show, Mr. West. Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate the introduction, <laughs> which was very nice, but also it's great to be be a guest with you on, on Litigation Radio. I really, uh, it's great to see you all doing this and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. Well, when I saw your company bio, I was a bit taken aback at sort of the scope of your position, leading a team of more than 600 folks. So just to start us off and give us some background, could you tell us more about sort of the organization of the departments you lead and how they fit into the company? Sure. As the chief legal officer, I actually have three different functions that report into me. The first is obviously the legal department. Second is our ethics and compliance department. And third is our security operation. That's both physical security that protects people and assets around the world, as well as our cybersecurity work. And, and what ties all of those functions together is that we manage risk for the entire company. And, and it's really you know, our, our task, our job, to ensure that the company can meet its its business objectives, while at the same time, we're mitigating risk that might be inherent in doing so. And, and you can imagine, Dave, that uh, at a tech company, you know, that's sort of in the business of, of disrupting, um, there's often a great deal of risk, which, which comes with some of the things that, that we do. And so it's important for us to manage that appropriately. 
And it's pretty exciting because Uber is a very cutting edge company. Uh, Many of the issues that we deal with have never been dealt with before. So they're issues of first impression. You know, we're, we're just 10 years old. But notwithstanding that that youth, notwithstanding that sort of startup culture, which we still have that desire to disrupt, we are also a very well-known company. And that's because our scale is enormous. Before the pandemic, we were doing 4 million trips a day in the United States alone. That meant that, you know, every second there were 45 Uber rides happening somewhere in the United States. 45 rides a second. And when you're operating at that kind of scale, all of a sudden, you know, you're not only a, a company, you're, you're very much a part of the social consciousness. So you are very much a household name. And that has been true for Uber. And so as we kind of think about how do we make sure we're achieving uh, various objectives, how do we make sure we're, we're achieving our mission to reimagine the way the world moves for the better. When we're in that business, how do we do that in a way that helps to ensure that we're engaging risk in an appropriate way? That's really the function of the chief legal officer's organization. Well, and let's talk about sort of your leadership of the department. I've you know read a couple of articles preparing for this interview, and you've been described by some of your colleagues as someone who's genuine, humble, a person with incredibly high integrity, uh, someone who gives employees sort of a rudder of transparency, integrity, and accountability to rely on. So how would you describe your leadership style, and how do you think that manif- manifests itself in the legal department? Well, first, Dave, I want to find those employees and thank them. That is very <laughs> nice. That's very, very high praise. Look, you know, I, I think that tone from the top is pretty essential if you're going to be any kind of effective leader in today's world. You know, as a leader, you very much have to embody, you have to model the mission, the values that the the company talks about, that the company articulates. You know, otherwise, you know, they're just words, right? Uh, And so it's, it's really important that your actions are reflecting the things that you are saying, you know, you, you, you say what you do, you're going to do and you do what you say. You know, I think p- part of uh, why I, I am both viewed that way, but also within the company, but also I think part of one reason we're so mission driven in, and are very focused on doing things the right way comes from some of the difficulties that we had in the past. You know, we we were a startup that, as a lot of startups uh, have, we had a, you know, a culture that really over-indexed on growth and sometimes to the exclusion of other things. And so that resulted in a situation in 2017 where we just had a series of, of difficult crises for the company not just legal challenges, but but some really fundamental cultural challenges as well. And kind of in the middle of that, the company had a transition, hired a new CEO, uh, Dara Khosrowshahi, who's the CEO now, hired him in late 2017. And I was his first executive hire. And together, we were really focused on how do we begin to turn around the culture of the company? But, you know, how do we also try to instill and, 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 and most importantly, model some values for the company that could be, uh, you know, real 
things that, that folks can, could rally around, real ideas that folks could rally around, and set a North Star that could help guide our actions. You know, one of the, one of the first things that DAR did was, was to set as our North Star as a company this idea of do the right thing, period. And that was critically important because, you know, immediately it became something that everybody tried to aspire to in whatever it was that they were doing. No matter who you were in the company, you understood that we had a North Star and that was in the, you know, however you, whatever you were doing, whatever your job was, however you were doing that job, it was important for you to keep this North Star in mind. And I would talk with the company and with my team about what that looked like. And, you know, what I would say and what I still say today is that doing the right thing means acting with transparency, with integrity and with accountability in everything that we do. So that, you know, it's very, very clear that these are touchstone values that will guide the way that we will engage with the world, the way that we will do business and I think that's one of the things that's really important for, for leaders to, as I say, not just articulate, but also to live um, if they're going to be able to live with or lead with, uh, with, with credibility. Well, it's interesting that you talk about turning around the culture of the company, because I think when most people think about attorneys and attorneys for companies specifically, they don't really think about the impact that an attorney or the the top attorney at a company can actually have on, on a company's culture. So can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to do that? Because I think a lot of people would be interested in, in hearing kind of uh, the influence that you've had over uh, Uber over the, the last few years. First, when you are dealing with an issue, you know, and we were at that time, we were a company in crisis. So we were dealing with the crises of 2017. And, and you know, for folks who, who, who may not know or, or don't remember, I mean, we, we, you know, there were issues around how women were being treated at the company. There were issues around, our, you know, whether or not we had proper governance in place you know, we had a situation where some board members were suing other board members, which is never a, a situation you want to be in with a company. And so there was this sense that we had become a bit unmoored from, you know, even some of the things which had had given rise to the company's founding. And so, you know, part of it was to 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 remind ourselves not only sort of who we were and how it was that we could recapture the great potential that Uber posed and how we could actually, you know, be the great company that we aspired to be. But part of it was also reminding ourselves that there are values which have to guide the way that we do business, the way that we do show up in the world. Um, and that that was more that became much more important the the bigger and broader our impact and reach became as a company. And, and, and the reason is, is because there are many more people, many more stakeholders, in addition to shareholders, but many more stakeholders who were impacted by the way Uber uh, would operate in any given city or any given jurisdiction. And so when you're operating at scale, when you're getting bigger and bigger, when you're impacting more and more people's lives, um, it's really important to make sure that you have some very clear values, very clear mission, things which are guiding how you are going to show up in the world. 
And so trying to, to make sure we were articulating that clearly to the company was really important. As I say, it was really important to make sure we were walking the talk. So, you know, it was when we were working on uh, safety, for instance, which has become a, a company value that we want to, to really put safety at the center of, of everything that we do. Um, you know, one of the things that we embarked on was, a, was an initiative to improve women's safety in particular. And there are a lot of reasons why we focused on women's safety, not the least of which is um, that women experience travel differently than men. You know, there have been lots of, lots of work has been done on this. There have been a couple of uh, articles or something in the New York Times on this about how women travel differently through the world, how they have to think about things that men simply don't have to think about from a safety standpoint. And so one of the things we wanted to do is, you know, make sure that when women used our platforms, either using it as an earner, as a driver, or using it as a rider, that they felt safe. And so there were a number of, of initiatives that we kicked off, both product enhancements, but also very real policy changes that we made to really demonstrate this commitment to safety. You know, one of the things that we did is we were one of the first tech companies to, to end the use of mandatory arbitration for individual claims of sexual assault and sexual harassment. This applied not just to our own employees, but it also applied to anybody who used the platform, driver, rider, anybody who used the Uber platform. One of the other things we did is we were the first company in the space to issue a very public, very transparent safety report which explained to individuals what was going on on the platform and, and importantly, um, not only acknowledging what the issues were, but um, importantly, saying what we were doing to make the platform even safer. And we made that commitment, released those numbers, even though it was difficult to release those numbers because we believe that, you know, frankly, sunshine is the best disinfectant and you can't solve an issue if, you don't, uh, if you're not holding yourself accountable to, to dealing with an issue. Um, we released those numbers and made the commitment that we would every two years release a U.S. safety report. So it's important to articulate, it's important, yes, to articulate these values, but it's also important to act in ways that are consistent with what you are articulating. And it's by doing that, you can begin to have an influence on the corporate culture. By doing that consistently, you can begin to actually reshape and, and have an impact on the direction of how that culture develops. Well, and one of the other values, uh, at least I've read about, that you've had an impact on is uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. And that's something that seems to me there's been a lot of talk about in the legal profession. More often than not, I've seen that that talk has not turned into action, especially at some law firms. So I think I'm really interested in, in learning about your leadership on those issues in particular and how you turned talk and good intentions into progress at your company. It's a great question and a great point, Dave. I think, you know, for us, DEI has been a company priority every year that I've been at Uber and I've been at Uber now for almost four years. And it's been important that we have made it a value and have talked about the importance of it, but also that we have, we again, we've sort of walked the talk, right? We've done things which demonstrate our, our commitment to DE&I. So, you know, it was important for us to talk about the importance of having diverse teams and 
and encouraging managers in the company to develop diverse teams. But we were one of the first companies in the tech sector to actually tie DNI metrics to executive compensation. So, so not only did we talk about it, it was important to take the action of making sure that executives were accountable to you know, making sure that this was a priority for them. You know, it was important for us to talk about the, you know, pay equity, to talk about achieving pay equity, but it was even more important for us to actually achieve pay equity, which we did in 2018. It was important for us to talk about transparency and sharing DEI data, again, to be held publicly accountable, which is why we have been releasing uh, you know, annual an annual D DNI report um, with data. You know, every single year, because you know, again, it's, it is critical to talk about these things. But as you say, you know, that's only part of the equation. It needs to make sure that there are actions which follow it. There are other things that we've done too. Like when I even think about my own team, you know, it was really important for me to to talk about the importance of DNI within the CLO org, the chief legal officer organization. And it was important for us to make that one of our priorities every year. But nothing, I think, was as effective than just kind of looking at my team. When you look at my leadership team, I have you know 15 members uh, of my leadership team. 80% of them are women. 12 of the 15 are women. Four of the women are women of color. And what that represents is the absolute best talent that I could find out there to fill the jobs that I was trying to fill, the roles that I was trying to fill on my leadership team. Because my experience has been, whether it's here at Uber or at Pepsi or in the government, is that when you set out to build the best qualified, the best experienced team that you possibly can, I have always found that doing that and being uh, vigorous and rigorous in your search will yield you a diverse team. It will happen naturally. Um, you, you do have to be willing, I think, to be intentional about it. You have to be willing to look hard, to look, you know, sort of broaden where you might traditionally or ordinarily look for talent. But if you set out to build the absolute best team you can, I have absolutely no doubt that those teams will be diverse. And that has always been my experience. And it's my experience at Uber as well. You know, one of the questions that I had was sort of what can law firm leaders glean from what you've been able to do at Uber? It seems to me that perhaps one of the biggest issues that I've always heard about is the retention and promotion of uh, diverse individuals. So what can law firm leaders sort of, you know, get from what you've been able to do at Uber and, and, you know, what recommendations might you make to firms that you deal with um, on a regular basis and your team deals with um, to improve the progress of diverse folks uh, within the profession? Well, I think, I, I do think it's important to say that this is work that you have to recognize is never finished. It's never complete. I think, you know, one of the things you know, like anyone, you know, lawyers like to like to complete tasks and like to make sure that, okay, you know, I, I'm meeting these metrics. I think one of the, the challenges that comes with really throwing yourself into DE&I work is the recognition that it is work that will be 
perennially unfinished. <laughs> you, will, you will never get to a point where if you're really you know, doing your work, where you're simply going to say, okay, we're diverse enough, now I can stop. And, and so I, I think part of it is just kind of changing the way you think about this work and preparing yourself for a commitment over the long term to make sure that you are continually bringing in different points of view, different backgrounds, different perspectives around the decision-making table. Um, it's really important because we already know from a number of studies that have been done that the, you know, the business case for diversity is pretty clear. We know that firms that have diverse leadership around that decision-making table, they perform better financially. We know that diverse teams make better decisions. So we, we have that data to, to make that business case. So we already know that. The, the real question, though, is are we willing to do some of the you know, hard work? Because as I say, it does require you sometimes to be more patient in filling a particular role. It does require you to broaden your search and to look in places where you, uh, where, where frankly, it's, you know, it's not reflexive or it's not, it's not sort of the well-worn path where you might be able to source talent. But once you do that, you will be rewarded, I think, with, with incredible talent. And, you know, look, I think, you know, sitting as a, as a, as a general counsel, as in-house counsel, I do think that in this role, I have had the ability to uh, help my law firm colleagues on the diversity front because, you know, we've been able to put in place you know, a program that, that I actually started at PepsiCo, but we really kind of developed it even, even more deeply and, and more extensively here at Uber, something we call the Preferred Counsel Program. And, and what it does is it, it, it seeks to identify 20, 25 law firms that we want to partner with and we want to give the lion's share of Uber business to over the course of a year or 18 months but what we but what we are looking for are firms that are, are are pushing hard on their own diversification within their own ranks. Firms that you know share our values around DEI, and so when we look at their numbers, when we look at their population, we do see diverse attorneys moving through the ranks at the same rate as everybody else. When we look at their numbers, we do see equity partners who are diverse. We do see practice group leaders who are diverse. We do see relationship partners who are diverse and they are staffing our matters with diverse teams. And, and I think, you know, our ability to, to make it a part of the criteria of what we look for in a law firm, in addition to being, you know, excellent client service and expertise in various areas of the law, uh, making Diversity, a part of that criteria, has helped us, I think, identify, you know, excellent firms out there to do uber legal work. But I also think it has helped uh, those firms make the internal case for diversity as they're trying to attract uh, our work, uh, you know, uh, and hopefully that leads to more diverse, uh, more diverse uh, legal profession overall. That makes a lot of sense. You're holding them accountable and, and they're helping you uh, to be accountable as well uh, for your metrics. So that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you kind of a question that I sort of opened uh, the discussion with, which is, you know, lawyers don't really have, don't really take leadership classes, yet they're meant to be leaders. They're government leaders. They're 
corporate leaders, leaders in law firms. Where did you learn your lessons on how to be a great leader? Probably not in law school, right? <laughs> I um, it, it's it's well, I'm still learning. Let me let me say that <laughs> I'm still learning. You know, just like Uber is still very much on its journey, both uh, from from a culture standpoint, a DE and I standpoint. I'm very much still on my my journey to to be a better leader, but but the primary primary sources of my education came from you know I've just been so incredibly fortunate to have worked for some amazing leaders throughout my career, and it really came from from watching them, from seeing them grapple with with difficult issues with with crises to kind of see it came from watching them make mistakes in some instances and how they dealt with setbacks and i've now been able to see that in business i've seen it in government i've seen it in in, in the law firm setting and you know watching these different leaders approach the world from different perspectives watching them deal with issues from different perspectives has been in just an incredible, incredible education for me. You know, one of the earliest leaders I, I worked for and was really able to observe up close was U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, the country's first female attorney general. And she, you know, she really in so many ways crystallized for me not only the consummate public servant, but also you know, the consummate lawyer and professional and someone who really understood the role of the attorney uh, in our society, how that how how important that was and how, you know, one could uh, live their life, but also live their career in a way that, you know, only enhanced the profession and enhanced the reputation of 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 lawyers. She was the person who who told me um, you know, I was when I was going off to be a federal prosecutor. You know, I was going to be a trial attorney and uh, an assistant U.S. attorney after having worked for her in Washington D.C. And we, we think of of prosecutors as trial attorneys in the courtroom, and they are there to win their case. And you know, that is that's their job. Prosecutors enjoy a, a, a you know a ninety six plus percent win rate. And they are, you know, they are good attorneys. But but it was Janet Reno who who reminded me before I went off to take that job that that as an assistant U.S. attorney, my job wasn't to win every case or win every trial I had. It was to make sure that I did justice in every matter that I handled. That that was my ultimate role. And you know that kind of of leadership that she exhibited and, and then, you know, certainly taught me is something that I've sort of carried with in my entire, over my entire career. I try, whether I'm in the public sector or the private sector, to make sure I'm, I'm remembering, you know, what she said to me, that it was my job to do justice in every single matter that I handle. And whether it's, whether it's Janet Reno or, or Eric Holder, um, who I had the great privilege to work closely with in the Obama administration, or any of the many many leaders that I've been able to do, to, to to work with uh, in the private and public sectors, really kind of learning leadership lessons from them, learning how to build a team, you know, seeing the kinds of people that they would surround themselves with, 
you know, really inform the way that I think about building teams. You know, I think it's so important to, to choose people who can complement you, people who can, who can see things you can't because of your own blind spots or your own biases. You know, people who have the courage to tell you the truth. It's so important, uh, particularly the more senior you become, to uh, surround yourself with really smart, really committed individuals who also have the ability and the courage to, to test your own assumptions about the world and to push your own thinking and, and thereby make your decision making better, more rigorous, and hopefully help you to make better decisions ultimately. So that's been, you know, that's really been my, that's really been my, 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 my leadership college is, is, you know, having the, the good fortune of, of having served so many great leaders. And that's interesting because, you know, one of the things that I've thought about over the years is, you know, you're looking for a mentor as a young attorney, for example, but not only do people not really tell you how to be a great mentor leader, they don't really tell you how to be a good mentee, how to take that criticism, how to take that learnings, how to take right. those learnings and apply it um, to what you do on a daily basis. So I'm just curious, you know, in, in terms of folks that you've mentored over the years, uh, what are some tips that you could give to young attorneys who are seeking out mentors and how they can help themselves uh, be a good mentee to great leaders? Well, you know, I think a part of it is finding people who are doing things that you want to do in your career and in your life. Finding people who, you know, share share your, your passion and share your, your values and getting them to, to give you advice. Um, you know, I, I, my experience has been that oftentimes uh, mentors find mentees. It's not the other way around. You know, my experience is that those relationships form naturally, or I should say, you know, the best mentor-mentee relationships are those, in my experience, are those that do form naturally. Those tend to be the ones that extend over the course of many, many years. When I think about some of the mentees that, that I have had, you know, they are just like some of the mentors I've had. These are relationships which which extend over, you know, decades in some cases. And it's really, it, it's really a, a, a rich relationship that is a two-way relationship. That is, you know, often in the beginning of that relationship, the mentor is sharing a lot of experience, a lot of perspective, a lot of, of, of just, you know, here are the unwritten rules of the road with the mentee. And that tends to be how the relationship is defined in the beginning. But I think, you know, those, those really truly rewarding relationships between mentors and mentees are those in which there comes this time, this point where you are as the mentor learning as much from the mentee as they are learning from you, if not more. And now I think about, you know, those relationships, you know, a really great example of this is actually my chief deputy general counsel, a woman named Tammy Alberon. Tammy was someone that I first met when we were both attorneys at, at Morrison and Forster. I was a partner and uh, she was an associate and we ended up on a project together. And, you know, like I said, these things tend to form naturally. She was someone that 
we just started to do lots of lots of work together. She ended up going off to another firm. I ended up going off to the government, but over the but we stayed in touch. And over the years, from you know time to time, I would actually try to hire Tammy to come join me at doing whatever it was I was doing. But it was often just not a good time for her. You know, I, you know, one time she was pregnant with her with her uh, third child, and you know couldn't leave. And you know, another time she couldn't make the move across country or whatever it was. Um, but it but it never really kind of matched up. But we stayed in touch, and when I was at PepsiCo, I hired her to be outside counsel for us, and she did excellent work for us. Turns out that, you know, I, I, we started talking, Dave, about some of the crises that, that Uber faced in 2017. Well, in the midst of that crisis, the board commissioned Attorney General Eric Holder. He was former Attorney General at this time. He'd, he'd left that job. So, but they, they commissioned Attorney General Holder to do a report on Uber's culture and Uber's governance environment and to do a real top-to-bottom internal investigation into you know, what went wrong and what needed to happen in order to right the ship. And that report produced a number of recommendations about what to do and what the company should, should be doing. And the person who wrote that report was Eric Holder's law partner, Tammy Alberon. So Tammy had done a number of interviews of Uber employees, understood that company backwards and forward. Fast forward uh, several months to when I'm hired and I'm looking for the perfect number two to help me change the culture, to help me rebuild the governance structure and environment and to help me help Dara turn things around. And there's no better, no better qualified, no better individual than my former mentee, Tammy Halberon, who knows the company you know, better than, than certainly Dara or I did even uh, because of all the work that she had done on the Holder Report. So you know, these things have a way of coming full circle. So now as my chief deputy, there's no question that I am learning as much from Tammy uh, every day that we get to work together as, as I certainly ever imparted to her. That's, that's really amazing. And I, I could go on and ask you so many more questions, uh, probably for you know, another hour or two, but that's all the time we have uh, today. I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I think all of us learned a lot about leadership, about mentorship, how to find the, the right position, finding the right culture. And you're just a, a great example uh, of a great leader in the law. So really appreciate your time today and for all the work that you've done. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been great to be with you. Appreciate it. Now it's time for a quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis on the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome to the show, Latasha. Thanks for having me. Well, I understand uh, you're going to be discussing jury research and selection today. So what's your quick tip? Sure. So I wanted to provide some tips about jury, the jury selection process um, and jury research in the age of social media. You know, for decades, attorneys have researched jurors to discover their backgrounds, 
ideology, preferences, and potential biases. And now, of course, in our current digital age, it should come as no surprise that the practice of researching jurors has really shifted from the hiring of private investigators pounding the payment to essentially paralegals pouring over laptops and viewing social media profiles. So the issue of jury research and selection in the digital age, I actually think is probably part of a, a larger discussion about whether courts in this age can find objective jurors. And certainly finding unbiased jurors in the pre-digital age, even in high-profile cases, was not very difficult. You know, in pre-digital age, jurors needed to maintain their unbiased status, and so they were told not to discuss the case with anyone, to avoid radio, television, and newspapers. Um, and of course, if the case was particularly controversial, then the jurors might even be sequestered. Of course, today, that same approach is not always, um, it doesn't always work. Few jurors can go eight hours, probably much less a whole week without using their smartphone or looking at their social media. And many people share so many aspects of their lives with others in real time through social media, which, um, again, in my opinion, I think is incompatible with an unbiased juror, or at least it can be. And so while the personal privacy in the age of social media may seem like a fiction, attorneys are certainly advised to pay close attention to their conduct while researching jurors online as what is a seemingly innocuous practice could actually ensnare an unsuspecting attorney into a series of unwanted transgressions. And so I wanted to share a few tips that attorneys should consider when researching potential jurors and thinking about jury selection in the age of social media. So the first tip is thinking about just the jurisdiction. Many jurisdictions have actually, um, believe it or not, not really addressed some of the key issues that are implicated by online jury research. The ABA model rules of professional conduct and advisory opinions on the model rules are actually a really great um, helpful guide on this topic. So, uh, for example, the ABA's Model Rule 1.1 requires that an attorney provide competent representation to a client. Competent representation requires the legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. And that is the ABA Model Rule 1.1. So, for some, Online research could fall within the scope of that rule, right? And an attorney who doesn't avail herself to resources such as Google, Facebook, Twitter, or, you know, any of the other social media things may simply not be living up to her duty of providing competent representation under that model rule um, if it's read to include online research for jurors or potential jurors. And some may even consider that to be malpractice, but it is, of course, important to understand what the courts and what your state says about, about that. So, for example, here in the District of Columbia, the bar has actually adopted an opinion that says that competent and zealous representation may require investigation of relevant information from social media sites of jurors or potential jurors to discover any sort of biased or other relevant information for jury selection. 
But California is actually on the other end of the spectrum. And sometimes courts there have ruled against online juror research with the rationale being that any duty of competence that a lawyer may have is superseded by the public policy of protecting a juror's privacy. So it's really important to understand, you know, what your state says on this issue. So jurisdiction is um, something to consider. Another thing um, to consider is understanding the ethical rules or the ramifications. You know, whether or not an attorney actually has an affirmative duty to investigate jurors or do online research, there are so many potential ethical issues that could arise for a lawyer who is researching jurors online, particularly given the ethical restrictions that prohibit counsel from making direct or indirect jury contact. And here again, the ABA has some model rules that are helpful and can inform an attorney on this path. The two rules that are implicated are the first rule being the model rule 3.5, which is an admonishment against ex parte communication or ex parte contact and improper influence of jurors. And in fact, the ABA has a formal opinion, uh, 466, uh, that is paired with Model Rule 3.5, and it addresses online research of a juror's internet presence. And essentially, formal opinion 466 from the ABA says that you know, virtually all types of passive jury research, whether that is browsing the internet or social media where there are no interaction between the attorney and the jury, will not violate the model rule of professional conduct 3.5. So the ABA does have some guidance on that issue. Another rule that the ABA, uh, model rule that the ABA has that is helpful and in can inform an attorney's path down this route is a rule 3.3, which requires candor when dealing with the tribunal, uh, potentially requiring attorneys to report any sort of juror misconduct, both during and before trial that they may observe on social media. And so, of course, in the context of jury research, that statement has been interpreted to implicate the potential to require an attorney to disclose to the court, for example, if a jury is tweeting during the trial or um, talking about the case during the trial. So the first tip is, of course, uh, knowing your jurisdiction. And the second tip is understanding the ethical ramifications. Um, And the third and final tip I have is just really just understanding your jury and your court. Attorneys have to deal with the trial judges as well as the jurors, individual concerns. And of course, from a judicial perspective, the court is typically, um, as I've already mentioned, going to be concerned with jury privacy and quite frankly, the potential chilling effect that the publicized practice of jury background investigation may have on the actual willingness of people to serve on juries. So, you know, if information from online research becomes part of a challenge for cause, maybe, for example, the the court may also have concerns surrounding the logistics and introducing and authenticating online information that's presented. And that just may be something that your judge does not want to deal with. And so in that regard, the court, you know, whether or not the court has the power to prevent an investigation of purely public information is is certainly questionable. But of course, the court certainly can prevent an attorney from 
overtly using some of that information during voir dire and just the back and forth with the court on that issue. It could potentially offend jurors who may feel that you have um, invaded their privacy. So you want to avoid any sort of negative impact on the court and the juror's opinion of you and your case. And so that is my third tip, just kind of reading the room and making sure that you're aware of what the court and the jury may think of any sort of online research that you have. So I think it is clear that modern technology has exponentially outpaced the legal field's ability to promulgate rules, and that has led to a number of countless gray areas at the intersection of law and technology. And so I do think that this issue of jury selection and online jury research is one that um, attorneys should be wary of and understand some of the implications that may arise. Thank you so much, Latasha, for those excellent tips on jury selection and research, um, especially your reminder to be aware of the helpfulness and ethical limits of social media research. So thanks a lot, and I hope you'll join us again. Of course. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we have for our episode today. I want to thank former litigation section chair Lawrence Pogram and our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera, for their help with guest preparation and booking. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True, as well as Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section. Thank you to Lawrence Gletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.